how does the shadow of the Holocaust inform how people are thinking about the current conflict in Israel and Gaza? I think the most common way to think about the Holocaust is to sort of place it outside of history. And my argument is basically that by doing that, we forfeit the opportunity to learn from history. That's my colleague, Masha Gessen. Masha's most recent essay for The New Yorker centers on the politics of memory in Europe. It's an essay about victimhood and power and about how the stories we tell about our history can shape our understanding of the present moment. You're listening to The Political Scene. I'm Tyler Foggett, and I'm a senior editor at The New Yorker. You said that we try to place the Holocaust outside of history. What do you mean by that? Like, is it the idea that there's nothing like the Holocaust and there will never be anything like it again? It's this idea of the singularity of the Holocaust. In fact, there are all sorts of ways in which people who insist on the singularity of the Holocaust level accusations against people like me who insist that we have to actually constantly compare the Holocaust to other things. And that's the only way that we learn. I'm not arguing, obviously, that the Holocaust was like anything else that mm-hmm. had occurred before or, or since, right? The Holocaust is a unique and uniquely horrible event in history. But that unless we learn to compare and unless we draw lessons that teach us to see the risk of something like the Holocaust occurring, we are, I'm not going to say doomed to repeat it, but that's really what I want to say. Where did the idea of the Holocaust being sort of a singular event come from? I mean, I assume that right after it happened, that was definitely the feeling. But I mean, why do you think that this is such a popular idea now? That's such a great question, uh, because actually, right after the Holocaust, if you look at what the great thinkers of the time were talking about, it was almost the opposite, Hmm. right? Acknowledging the unprecedented scale and the unprecedented, I want to say, design of the Holocaust, you know, certainly genocides had happened before. Certainly mass murder had happened before. What hadn't happened was industrial-style and industrial scale mass murder. It was the the creation of death factories. It was the use of railroads to transport people to their death that bore the unmistakable hallmark of, of the industrial age. And so, while everybody was aware that that was unique and uniquely horrible, the great thinkers of the middle of the 20th century, the great Jewish thinkers who survived the Holocaust, were actually obsessed with the possibility that it would repeat. And we're in various ways trying to figure out how to describe it, how to prevent it, how to compare it, how to see signs of it coming, how to see people who are, who are inclined to follow totalitarian leaders who might lead them to commit those kinds of atrocities. And over the last 75 years, we've made this 180-degree turn. And I think what has happened is that we've created a culture of memory, and I write a lot in the piece about the culture of memory in Germany, but we've actually created a similar culture of memory in the United States that positions the Holocaust as unimaginable, as absolute evil. And the thing is, if something is unimaginable, then 
anything that happens in the present, which is by definition imaginable, yeah. is not like it. And I think that's that's the crazy mental trick that we've played on ourselves. What are the risks of that mental trick? I mean, what are we losing by thinking of the Holocaust as just like a truly sort of exceptional event, at least in the um, the context of history? Um, I think the risk is very easy to sum up. It's that we trick ourselves into thinking that the Holocaust isn't possible. The fact that it happened means that it was possible, and it's it remains possible. We are still capable of it as humans. And so if we say that it's unimaginable, we are also saying it's impossible, and we don't have to train a frightened eye on ourselves to check whether we're about to step into it again. So your essay focuses a lot on the way that Germany in particular memorializes the Holocaust. What's the story that they tell about the Holocaust? The reason I chose Germany is because I think that even though um, Germany's what they call memory culture, that's an actual phrase, Germany's memory culture is in many ways similar to the culture of memory about the Holocaust that we have in this country. It's so much more strongly pronounced and so much more articulated, so much more sort of cultivated as a national enterprise in Germany. And so I hope that people see that it's a good lens through which also to view what we do with Holocaust memory in this country. But in Germany, there was a period from the 1980s through, I'd say, the early aughts when there was this active creation of, of this memory culture. I was obsessed with it. I traveled there a lot, and I, I wrote about it a lot. And it was really exhilarating to see a country doing that. Part of the reason that I was obsessed with it was that at the time I was living in Russia, and, and I thought, what an extraordinary example of a country sort of looking at its darkest self. I wonder if Russia will ever be able to do that. And then somehow it, it started sort of ossifying, I'd say maybe 15 years ago. And... It went from this exhilarating moment of creating culture to this kind of frightening moment of culture being enforced and particular ways of remembering being enforced and other ways of remembering and ways of querying being discredited and actually punished. And one of the ways in which Germany punishes the wrong kind of remembering is through creating this... um, anti-anti-Semitism bureaucracy. So there's several dozen anti-Semitism commissioners who track what they consider to be anti-Semitism. And what's nuts about it is that uh, actual anti-Semitism and some very, very scary incidents of anti-Semitism that we have seen in the last few years in Germany, including violent attacks, including a shooting outside of the synagogue in Halle, which killed two people, is lumped together with criticism of the state of Israel and things like leveling the Holocaust or relativizing the Holocaust. That's considered anti-Semitism. And a lot of those anti-Semitism charges, and I don't mean criminal charges, but sort of public charges, Mm -hmm. are brought against Jews, but very few of the commissioners are actually Jewish. So there's like this non-Jewish bureaucracy of of deciding what what constitutes anti-Semitism in the name of preventing anything like the Holocaust from happening again in Germany, sort of with constant reference to the darkest chapter in German history. 
But it's it's like this cudgel that's wielded over culture and over the work of a lot of Jewish cultural practitioners. So what is the definition of anti-Semitism that they, you know, purport to be working with? Right. So Because um, there's this whole, obviously, debate over, you know, whether anti-Semitism, whether that encapsulates anti-Zionism or whether those can be two different things, as you were alluding to. Right. So there's uh, there's this obscure but incredibly influential controversy around the definition of anti-Semitism. There's an intergovernmental organization called the International Holocaust Remembrance Association, which includes all the European countries and Australia, and I can't remember who else. Um, but anyway, this uh, they drafted a definition, I, I guess, about five years ago. Five years ago? Why? Why so recently? You know, that's an interesting question. I think that I, I don't have I don't have a single answer to it. But a lot of these memory wars have been playing out quite recently, certainly. Uh, within the last decade, and I think more, most intensively within the last years. And I think that um, part of it has to do with sort of revisionist, re- revisionism in, in Eastern Europe. Part of it has to do with Israeli and particularly Netanyahu's efforts to form alliances with governments and non-governmental organizations in Europe, primarily to prevent an anti-occupation consensus from really solidifying in the European Union and part of it, I think, is is also an element of sort of rightward drift in Jewish diaspora politics in general, which, you know, I'm not sure there is a, a single cause that, that we can point to in, in that. So anyway, so the, the International Holocaust Remembrance Association drafted this definition of, of anti-Semitism. The, the definition itself is, is perfectly neutral, but it contains several examples of anti-Semitism, including criticism of the state of Israel as a racist enterprise and including comparing, and and this is really important, comparing the the actions of Israel to those of Nazis. So seems really specific. It's really specific. It, of course, has to do with the occupation. It has to do with the blockade of Gaza. And it has to do with what we started out talking about, which is this what I think is an essential intellectual tool for preventing further crimes against humanity, which is taking the ultimate crime against humanity, uh, which also, by the way, gave rise to international humanitarian law. Uh, So in a sense, you know, we're always, when we're talking about international humanitarian law, we're always talking about the Holocaust. Mm. But we can't talk about Israel and the Holocaust in the same breath, according to this definition of anti-Semitism. I think this definition of anti-Semitism has also had a lot to do with the rise of anti-BDS laws, um, which is something that's very important in Germany and also something that's very important in this country. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about the BDS movement, just kind of give a brief explanation of it for listeners? BDS is Boycott, Divestment, Sanctions Movement, and it's avowed goals are to exert economic pressure on the state of Israel in order to end the occupation and guarantee the right of return to Palestinians. It's a non-violent boycott movement. Uh, And I think that that's the most important thing to keep in mind in our discussions of it, because we can discuss it on the merits, right? We can discuss whether people should be supporting this boycott or, or not. But it has been portrayed as fundamentally anti-Semitic. And Germany has adopted a 
And this is a completely insane story. Uh, so <laughs> Germany has adopted a non-binding uh, anti-BDS resolution that deems BDS to be anti-Semitic. And the resolution was originally proposed by the IFD, the far-right party, and was voted down because at the time all the mainstream parties refused to participate in anything that IFD proposed. But then, of course, they had just voted down this anti-anti-Semitic resolution, so they immediately had to repropose it themselves, and then they passed it. So it was this incredible trick where nothing that purports to fight anti-Semitism can possibly be voted down in the German parliament, but also it served as the IFD's basically ticket into the political mainstream. Hmm. So this far-right party uses supposed anti-anti-Semitism in order to ride into the political mainstream in Germany, and that's almost all you have to, do, to know about the politics of memory in Germany. It's a non-binding resolution, so it hasn't really been tested in the courts to see uh, whether it's, it violates the German constitution, which, which guarantees freedom from censorship and freedom of research and art creation. But the German state is incredibly generous. Basically, all cultural production in Germany is funded by the state in some form or, or another or, or by local authorities. And so it's created this weird culture of policing cultural events. And nobody who's in any way associated with BDS can at this point be funded by the German state. And what that means is people's prizes get rescinded, people get disinvited from conferences, from festivals, and on and on and on. Yeah, I think you wrote in your piece that whenever someone is up to speak at a conference or um, something like that, it's like their name along with like BDS in Israel will be Googled to see what statements they've made. Yeah, there are government officials who are actually like sitting there <laughs> Googling combinations of, of, of people's names and, and, and BDS. But, you know, I don't want to talk about Germany as though it were crazy. I mean, all, everything that I'm describing sounds, I think, pretty, pretty nuts. But 35 U.S. states have anti-BDS laws on the books. New York State failed to pass an anti-BDS law, so um, Andrew Cuomo, who was then governor, issued an executive order. And uh, all of these uh, laws and executive orders uh, or resolutions are based on this premise that, A, that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism by definition, and B, that a nonviolent boycott movement is somehow a threat to the existence of the state of Israel. And do you see, like, similar debates happening with what constitutes Islamophobia or or even, you know, just racism? Like, I'm curious whether there's, like, an analogous situation we, we've seen. Um, yeah, I think on, on Islamophobia, I think the answer is probably not. Um, and, you know, partly because it's not so terribly bad in this culture to be accused of being Islamophobic. That's almost a badge that people will accept. Yeah. I think it's different with racism. I think uh, it's terrible yeah. to be accused of being racist, yeah. right? And it's terrible to be accused of being anti-Semitic. It's even not so great to be accused of, of being a self-hating Jew. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I wanted to talk a little bit more about this idea of, um, you know, it's sort of being written into this particular definition of anti-Semitism that was it comparing um, the IDF to, to Nazis? Is that the thing that's banned within that definition? 
Um, if, am I, I I'm not that sure right? if it's the idea for or the state of Israel. The state general, of Israel. Yeah. There's something funny about that where it's almost like, um, are they preempting a comparison that they can kind of anticipate coming? My sense is that it was a comparison that was gaining traction. Yeah. Um, and, you know, honestly, it's a shocking comparison, right? It's meant to be shocking. And that's that's where I, I make a comparison in, in the piece that's also meant to be shocking, but I think needs to be made. And um, What is that comparison? So the comparison is of the Gaza Strip to a ghetto. And the reason I made that comparison, it hadn't occurred to me before, and it was sort of like mind-boggling to me that it hadn't occurred to me before, but after October 7th, I was talking with a friend who's actually Israeli um, who said, I don't like the term open-air prison. And I thought, well, of course you don't like the term open-air prison because it's inaccurate. Uh, yeah. And it seems to have first appeared in a report by David Cameron back when he was prime minister uh, of the UK. And then it was picked up um, by a lot of people. And there's a Human Rights Watch report from, I think, just a year or two ago on Gaza called Open Air Prison. And I thought, well, okay, it's not a prison. There are no cells. There are no prison guards. It's a ghetto. Uh, it's walled in. Only a very tiny number of people. Uh, this is I'm describing this bef before mm -hmm. uh, uh, October seventh. Only a very tiny number of people have the right to leave, even for a short period of time. And what I mean is, eighteen thousand Gazans had work permits to work in Israel before October seventh, out of about two million people. So they could go in and out uh, of of the Gaza Strip. And importantly, uh, order is maintained not by Israeli forces, not by Israel, which has blockaded the Gaza Strip, but by a local force, but which happens in the case of Gaza to be tyrannical, which was also the case in some ghettos in occupied Poland, not all of them. And so I thought, you know, this is, this is a much more accurate comparison, which of course couldn't have been made. Um, I'm sure I'm not the first person that it occurred to, but, um, you know, probably somebody was sitting there and thinking, oh, my God, if I compare this to a ghetto, there's going to be an incredible backlash. And so to convey the information that I need to convey, I'm going to call it something else. I'm going to call it an open-air prison. Which still sounds horrible, but is not technically, yeah, sort of accurate, just in terms it's, of the... It's not technically accurate. Yeah. I mean, it may, you know, one could argue that it sounds even worse than a ghetto uh, in practice. But in the imaginary, it sounds so much worse because it draws that, uh, that direct peril. In that, your essay, you talk a little bit about how the political goals of Israel also kind of shape the way that we tell the story of the Holocaust. And you give this example um, from 2018 where you say that Netanyahu was willing to lie about the Holocaust in order to build friendly relations with Poland. Could you talk a little bit about what happened there? It's pretty incredible. So from 2015 until this year, uh, the ruling party in Poland was the Law and Justice Party which was neither particularly respectful of the law nor especially just and actually undertook a dismantling of the Polish judiciary. So this this right-wing party and part of their mission, really like a central part of their uh, of its mission, was to revise the story of the Second World War in Poland and in particular to portray Poles not as collaborators of the Nazis but as victims and as people who 
were always helping to try to save Jews from the Nazis. Now, there were people who were saved by Poles. In fact, my very own cousin uh, and her mother were saved by uh, actually a couple of Polish families who kept them safe from 1943 until 1945. But the ruling party of Poland lied by saying that it was systematic. And they used this lie to persecute historians who argued that not only was it not systematic, but in fact collaboration was far more common. And also, and this I think is a super important part of historical research, um, that what was left of the Polish state, of the pre-occupation Polish state, the police, local authorities frequently collaborated with the Nazis. So it was not purely an occupation enterprise. But in 2018, Benjamin Netanyahu went to Poland and said that the Polish government in exile had set up a system for helping Jews and that Poles systematically and frequently saved Jews from the Nazis, which, as you know, as we say, claimed falsely that, right? Um, so he was willing to lie in order to forge an alliance with, with Poland. There is a really sad footnote to this which is that in March 2022, Volodymyr Zelensky addressed the Knesset in the hopes of getting Israeli aid for Ukraine and made the same claim about Ukraine, equally untrue, which is not to say there aren't righteous Ukrainians. There were people who saved Jews, but there was no system to it and it was not common. And um, that didn't work for him. It only works for forging alliances between far-right demagogues. It does not, it does not, it, it is not a universal tool. So I'd like to ask you a little bit more about how the right weaponizes the fear of anti-Semitism. But first, we're going to take a quick break. You'll hear more of the political scene from The New Yorker in just a moment. So in your piece, you argue that anti-Semitism can be a cynically wielded political instrument by the right. What do you mean by that? What do you think is the right's, like, ultimate goal with anti-Semitism? Well, first, let me give you just a very quick example. I mean, we just saw this happen in Congress a few days ago when Republicans overwhelmingly voted for a non-binding resolution that basically claims that anti-Zionism is always anti-Semitism. And among those Republicans were at least two who are known for being white supremacists and anti-Semites. And among those who voted against it was Jerry Nattler, a Jewish Democrat from New York, who argued, I think correctly, that a lot of the time anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism, but some of the time it's not. And you can't just categorically make this claim and enshrine it even in a non-binding resolution. But to answer your question, I think most of the time this political behavior is driven by Islamophobia and anti-immigrant sentiment. It's really, really blatant in Germany, where you see politicians at this point, both on the right and on the left, talking about immigrants from Muslim countries who are the majority of immigrants to Germany as presumptively anti-Semitic, as having to prove that they deserve the right to be tolerated. And, and this is almost an exact quote from the vice chancellor, who is a Green Party politician in Germany, 
But it's really, it's re- it's really rampant on the right, which gets elected on promises of shutting down immigration, of deporting immigrants. And when they say immigrants, they mostly mean Muslims. And then they use accusations of anti-Semitism to both gain popularity and to make deportations possible. At the White House's Hanukkah party this week, Biden said that without Israel, no Jew anywhere would be safe. How do you respond to that kind of quote? I have a really visceral reaction to it because, you know, I grew up in the Soviet Union in a blatantly anti-Semitic system. Like, first of all, I was geographically positioned and am old enough to have really grown up in the shadow of the of the Holocaust. But also, that country was so anti-Semitic, my parents weren't able to attend the universities that they wanted to because they're Jewish. I couldn't get into elementary school wow. uh, that they wanted to put me in because the Jewish kids were separated from the non-Jewish kids for admission tests. So I was a really good little Zionist. I was obsessed with Israel because the idea that there was a place where Jews were in the majority was, and this is no exaggeration to me as a kid, the idea was life-saving. Yeah. So part of me hears that phrase and says, yes, that is exactly true because I remember little me. But of course, it's also such a scary idea that um, the most powerful man of the wor- in the world will say that unless Jews have a place to flee to, uh, I mean, the most powerful man of the, in the world who also happens to be president of the country that has, I believe, more Jews than Israel or almost as many Jews yeah. as, as Israel, um, that is just a terrible—I mean, I'm, I'm sure it was a, a Biden-esque blurt, but, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, but, but the subtext of, his, of it is, is quite terrifying. I'm curious about how American free speech protections change the context in which we talk about sort of like anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism in the U.S. as compared to, you know, in Europe or specifically in Germany? Or do you think that actually it's kind of a similar, where it's like we have these free speech protections, but then after enough like non-binding resolutions, maybe you don't have them? Yeah, I mean, what's uh, I think the reason that the impact of of the stuff in Germany is more pronounced than here is just because there's so much more state funding. Hmm. But we have a lot of these mechanisms in place. The State Department actually adopted the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism. And in 2019, Donald Trump issued an executive order based on the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism. And I think Jared had an op-ed in the Times or the Post, I can't remember, that day claiming that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. And the executive order withholds federal funding from colleges, universities, and other projects that fail to protect people from anti-Semitism. So it's actually at the point where declaring that anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism are the same is affecting which schools get funding, and it has more of an effect on the policy level. It does. I mean, I think we haven't seen the consequences of it yet, or maybe we have and we're not aware of them. That's also possible. Certainly, there are individual cases of people in various states where there are BDS laws not being able to take a job because they have to sign a, a pledge promising not to support BDS, that sort of thing. But the impact hasn't been huge as far as I know. I may be wrong. But I think the potential is there, and that's part of what I'm worried about, especially 
with the conversation now around universities. I think that part of what makes these university presidents particularly vulnerable is the specter of this executive order. That's interesting, yeah, because I wanted to talk to you about the House hearing on anti-Semitism on college campuses and how you understand what happened in the hearing in light of the essay you just wrote. So, I mean, I don't think I'm particularly original in comparing those hearings to McCarthy hearings. I mean, just the sort of the badgering style and the clear the clear goal of getting these women. Ms. McGill, at Penn, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's rules or code of conduct? Yes or no? If the speech turns into conduct, it can be harassment. Yes. I am asking specifically calling for the genocide of Jews, does that constitute bullying or harassment? If it is directed and severe or pervasive, it is harassment. So the answer is yes. It is a context-dependent decision, Congresswoman. It's a context-dependent decision. That's your testimony today. Calling for the genocide of Jews is depending upon the context. That is not bullying or harassment. This is the easiest question to answer yes, Ms. McGill. Uh, I'm not also particularly original in saying they were blatantly misogynistic. In what ways do you think? Well, there's a, there's a reason those three college presidents were chosen. There have been anti-Semitic incidents or accusations of anti-Semitism on a lot of other college campuses, including major Ivy League campuses. But those universities are not run by women. Yeah. So I think that's part of it. Um, so Representative Stefanik seems to be smart and have a pretty clear agenda of bringing down all of these presidents. And I can't help but think that there's also an anti-Semitic subtext to this. Because, of course, a college president's main job is raising money. And in the far-right imagination, in, or in the MAGA imagination, all the money is controlled by Jews. Yeah, like George Soros. and Ex- yeah, Exactly. So, um, and, you know, and the stories that we see coming out of these universities is, of course, that Jewish donors then start pulling their funding, making it untenable for the university to maintain the leadership because they lose the ability to raise money. So I think it's it's diabolical and anti-Semitic to decide we're going to use Jewish money to bring down these presidents of these universities that we despise. And we're always talking about how we despise the universities themselves, not these particular people. You teach at multiple college campuses, right? Um, <laughs> I've I, taught at multiple you college campuses. I'm at CUNY now. You're yeah. at CUNY. What is, what is it like at CUNY right now? I mean, do you see the the protests and do you feel like these questions about anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism are, are very much a live issue? So, I mean, I teach at the journalism school, which is a tiny uh, – I'm not like in a campus setting, mm-hmm. um, unfortunately, because it's very hard to – to generalize about CUNY, I mean, CUNY yeah. is, is huge, massive. but but some of CUNY, some CUNY colleges have actual campuses, not the journalism school. But one thing to know about CUNY is that between ten and twelve percent of the student body is Muslim, and less than one percent is Jewish. Hmm. There are so many of our students and faculty who are personally affected, who have connections to the region, 
who are not watching this as some abstract debate on, on what is an, is an anti-Semitism, who are watching to know whether their loved ones are alive, you know, making daily phone calls before coming to school. So, I mean, I think CUNY is unique, but I think there's something universal in this country about the generational difference between students and faculty and donors and congresspeople who are observing this, that um, younger people just have a, a, an entirely different view of what's happening in Israel-Palestine. And that's definitely the case in the U.S. And, and I'm wondering if you, um, I don't know how much of it you were able to see when you were in Germany of like what the the younger generations are like and how they feel about this and about this, you know, definition of anti-Semitism that's being um, brought down from on high. Yeah, so that's a whole other story to do about, about <laughs> Germany and, and Berlin in particular. Berlin has been a real destination for left-wing Israelis. So they're actually thriving communities. Like, they're, they're, they're building a utopian Israel-Palestine in Berlin, where you see entire neighborhoods that are basically made up of people from the Middle East who are also going out to protest together. A lot of these protests having been declared illegal in Germany. People are prevented from wearing kefiyas, from carrying Palestinian flags. There was a protest that I went to when I was in Berlin. Uh, there was a protest organized jointly by a bunch of Jewish and Palestinian artists. And there was a woman, an Israeli citizen, as it turned out, who was holding up a sign that said, from the river to the sea, we demand equality. Hmm. And the police cut through the crowd and removed the sign because the phrase, from the river to the sea, is considered um, unallowable in the public space in Germany. Even when it's it has that second line that's supposed to intentionally... Exactly. Yeah, complicate it. I'd like to return back to this idea of, of memory culture, which is so interesting, and just how you think it's impeding our understanding of the war. Um, just something to kind of leave listeners with, like a last takeaway. Well, I want to I um, come back to what I think is an urgent need to compare things to the Holocaust. The only difference between us humans who live in the 21st century and humans who lived 100 years ago uh, or 90 years ago is that we have the opportunity to learn from the Holocaust. We're not better. We're not smarter. We're not more moral by any means. None of that is going to prevent us from repeating the Holocaust. The only thing that can prevent us is knowing that it's possible and trying to look at what's happening now and constantly asking ourselves, are we about to become our worst selves again? And I think that's a question we need to ask about Gaza. I mean, so many people that I respect and care about are claiming that it is absolutely necessary to indiscriminately bomb the Gaza Strip and kill civilians and kill children and displace, you know, at this point or at the time of writing, uh, eight out of ten Gazans had been displaced. I mean, that is a mind-boggling figure. And um, we have to ask ourselves, I mean, by we, I mean humanity, are we doing it again? 
Thank you so much. Thank you. Masha Gessen is a New Yorker staff writer. You can read their essay, In the Shadow of the Holocaust, on newyorker.com now. This has been The Political Scene. I'm Tyler Foggett. The show is produced by Michelle Moses, with editing help from Gianna Palmer. Our executive producer is Stephen Valentino. Our theme music is by Allison Layton-Brown. Enjoy the rest of your week, and we'll see you next Wednesday.